0: chapter 22 today we come to the final section of the book of Revelation the final verses and what we find is a review and a summary of the central themes of the book which means that for the most part we will not hear new things but rather repeating for emphasis the things that have been written already there is one exception that is, we will hear a new thing in terms of a warning. Let's read the passage and then uh, we will go through it. Revelation 22, we'll begin at verse 7 and read to the end of the book. So we begin in verse 6. Verse 6, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. As we begin, we need to ask ourselves, where are we in the book of Revelation? And what is it that John has been writing about just previous to the passage we read today? In chapter, chapter 21, and the first five verses of chapter 22, John has been writing about the church. He's referred to it as the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he has described it using different metaphors. The first one was the metaphor of the city the place where God lives, the dwelling place of God with men, a place that shines with the glory of God. It's made up of the people of God, and that's why you have all the 12s that are mentioned, um, 12 gates with 12 angels at the gates. It has 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles on them. It's measurements that it is uh, 12,000 uh, stadia cubed. The walls are 144 uh, cubits thick. That is 12 times 12. 12. Um, It is made up of God's people. It is also something of great value. And as I've mentioned before, it's this part of the description, I think, where people really go off track. And they think that what is being described is heaven. And so people talk about going to heaven where the streets are paved with gold. And they fail to recognize what is being said. Not to say that heaven is not a wonderful place, but what is being described here is the church of God. And how precious is the church? Well, it is so precious that this is how it is described uh, with made up of precious stones and of gold. It is so precious that Jesus came to earth and lived among us that he might redeem his bride. That's how precious the church is. The church is also that which will be the light of the world and the nations will walk in its light. And it is something which has its gates open all the time. That is to say, it is a place whose gates will never be closed And people can come in to the church at any time. Then John uses in chapter 22 the metaphor, the language of Eden. We read of the tree of life. We haven't read about the tree of life since the book of Genesis. And then the river of the water of life. All this to describe that it is among God's people we have the gospel, that this is where people can find the gospel and eternal life. That's where we ended last week. And so... Today, as we come to this last part, I want to divide it up into four parts. First of all, the first two sections is a pattern that is copied from earlier uh, in the book of Revelation. It is repeated here. And then thirdly, we have a division among the peoples. And then lastly, we have an invitation, a blessing, and a warning. First of all, the pattern copied. This is in verses 6 through 9. In chapter 18, John is given a vision of the unfaithful wife. The great prostitute. And then in chapter 19, we have the hallelujah passage, um, where the word hallelujah, the only place it appears in all of Scripture, is used, where they praise God for his judgment, but also because of the wedding that is coming up, the wedding between the lamb and his bride. Right after that, we find certain things. First of all, an affirmation that these words are faithful and true. Secondly, a pronouncing of blessing, a benediction. Blessed are those who invited, who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Thirdly, we have John falling at the feet of the angel. And fourthly, John being rebuked for doing it, where the angel says, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers. Today, after talking about the faithful bride, the wife of the Lamb, in contrast to the unfaithful wife, now we find the same thing. An affirming of the veracity of what has been said, a pronouncing of a blessing, John falling down at the feet of the angel, and then being rebuked once again for doing it. So we begin in verse number 6. These words are trustworthy and true. We might say, well, well, of course they are. Why wouldn't they be? These are the words, these are the revelations of him who is... Faithful and true. In chapter 1, Jesus is described as the faithful witness. In chapter 3, he says to the church in Laodicea that he is the faithful and true witness. And in chapter 19, the rider on the white horse whose name is faithful and true. If he is faithful and true, then whatever he says, we we would have to argue would be trustworthy and true as well. So yes, this is true. And then we have... A blessing, a benediction that is pronounced. Um, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. We will see more benediction in verse number 14, but it is a pronouncing of blessing on those who are the people of God. Here it says, those who keep the words of the prophecy in chapter 19, those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's the same thing. Blessed are those who are the people of God. John falls at the feet of this messenger, this angelic being, and the angel says to him again, do not do it. And the reason is given is the same as what was given in chapter 19. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book. Don't worship me. We might put in parentheses. He says, worship God. I mentioned this when we, went, when we came to this passage in chapter 19. That if you think about it, it's really quite amazing that these words are found in the book of Revelation. This is a book that deals with cosmic issues. This deals with the judgment that is going to happen on those who have broken the old covenant. It would seem that, I mean, you, know, you only have X amount of space on a scroll to write these things out. This has already happened once, and we were amazed that it was written there. Why would you write it again? It must be worthwhile, particularly because we find it again. I don't think that the issue is that John has fallen into idolatry, that somehow he is now worshipping the angel rather than worshipping God. Uh, After all, we are told that he is in the spirit. Uh, He has been given visions by God. It seems unlikely that this would be the case. Um, I don't think that John is worshipping the angel, but rather showing honor and respect to one who is higher than himself. He bows down, he falls at the feet of one who is superior to him, his superior. And the angel will not have this. And the angel doesn't deal with false worship. He doesn't say, listen, listen, I'm not God, don't worship me. But rather, he says, don't do this. You and I are fellow servants. We're on the same plane. I am not superior to you. We are on the same plane. Because of the work of Christ in obtaining our salvation, we now, as God's people, have access to God's presence. And we are going to reign with Christ. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that we will actually judge the angels. See, angels, even though they are exalted and powerful, are no more than fellow servants now because of what Christ has done. See, we are now on the same plane with angels. We are God's people, and when John falls down as, as much as to say, you're higher than me, you've given me this wonderful message, I want to bow down and show my respect, my subordination if you wish to, the angel says, no, no, no. Because of the work of Christ, you are a child of God, we are on the same plane, we are fellow servants. And what do servants of God do? What do the angels do in heaven? What do the elders, what do the 24 elders do? And the four living creatures, what do we do? Those who are God's servants, worship him. And therefore, the angel says, worship God. He alone is worthy of worship. I think this expression, worship God, is in fact the thread that holds the whole book of Revelation together. This is the theme of the book of Revelation, that we are to worship God. God is worshipped in heaven, and God is to be worshipped here on the earth. And as I said at the beginning of our worship today, sometimes it's easier to worship God, or it seems to be easier to worship God, than other times. The church is about to go through horrendous times in terms of persecution. Things that we have read about in history books, but I think that we can't begin to comprehend. I think it's a little harder to worship God in those circumstances. But John has been given insight, and he is now writing it to the churches to say, listen, what you see may seem to be bad. It may say to you, God has lost control. God is not in control anymore. The dragon has taken over. He says, but no, no, no. I've, I've been to heaven. I've, I've been to the presence of God. They worship God there. We are to worship God here, even in the midst of great great difficulties. So that's the first pattern that we find. After speaking about the unfaithful wife, now describing the faithful wife, we have these four things. In verses 10 through 12, we have another pattern that is copied, but this comes from the beginning of the book, and that sort of makes sense because now we're we're coming full circle, we're tying the loose ends together. And what we see is that John is shown the things that must soon take place. What, is, what he has is shown is the testimony of Jesus. The one who commissions John is, in fact, Jesus. And so we see this here. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And who is this Jesus? Well, he, is, he describes himself here as the root and offspring of Jesse and the bright morning star. If you think about it, at least part of this should be confusing to us. How can you be both the root and the offspring? How can you be both the source and the culmination? Well, it is precisely because he is the root that, in fact, the line of David continues. Uh, One one writer puts it, Otherwise, it would have vanished without a trace. The race of David is more than his offspring. It indicates that the race of David should, save for Christ, have ceased to exist. Had Jesus not been the root of David, if you read the Old Testament, you will see it very clearly, the line of David would have disappeared. After all, we talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel. And if you know your Old Testament, we have dynasty after dynasty coming and going. And in the south, only one remains. But then even that is taken into captivity. If Jesus were not the root of Jesse the line of David would have disappeared. What about this expression, the bright morning star? Uh, Some translations have the bright and morning star. This is from chapter 2, the letter to the church in Thyatira. To the one who overcomes, I I will also give him the morning star. In the book of Numbers, A prophet named Balaam is hired by the Moabites to curse Israel. And three times he goes to curse them and instead he blesses them. And in one of the blessings he pronounces, he says, I see him, speaking of the Messiah, but not now. I will behold him, but not here. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So the star and the scepter are mentioned together as pointing to the coming Messiah. But what is a morning star? We know this, but what is a morning star? I am no astronomer, but it is said that the morning star is the last star to come out at the end of night. Some people believe it is the planet Venus. And that when it appears, then you know. A new day is about to begin. That's why it's the morning star. It's the star that comes out right at the darkest point, right before the sun gets ready to rise. And it basically says here comes a new day. Jesus is the morning star because when he appears, he comes to say, here is a new age. It is a messianic age. It is the time of the kingdom. And thus he is the bright morning star. The second thing that we find in both the first chapter and here is that John is the one who heard and saw these things. This may be Go back a while. You have to think about it a bit. But we find a pattern generally throughout the book of Revelation that John hears and then he sees. He hears and then he sees. In chapter 1, as John begins, he records, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So he hears. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. So he hears And then he sees. And while this is a visual book, a book filled with visual imagery, John does not simply see, he hears. And the hearing instructs him. It gives him insight into what, in fact, it is that he is seeing. One writer puts it, when the Spirit brings John into a state of prophetic vision, John's first sensation is not sight, but a sound. He hears and then he sees. The third thing that we find in the first chapter, and we find here the pattern copied, is the statement, Behold, I am coming soon. It's a recurrent theme in this book, but particularly in this chapter. Seven times in this chapter alone, we have the word either come or coming, in referring to the return of Christ uh, in this chapter alone. Verse number 12, if you look, Behold, I am coming soon. The second time in six verses that we find this statement, and it should let us know that this is important, and I would say that it's going to happen soon. If you know the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, Pharaoh has dreams, and no one can interpret them, but Joseph can. Pharaoh has two sets of dreams, and then when Joseph has finished interpreting, or when he's giving his interpretation, he said the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. So here, twice in six verses, Behold, I am coming soon. We need to get the message that Christ is returning soon. We find this throughout the book of Revelation. The letter to the church in Philadelphia, I am coming soon. Now, what does this mean? How we understand this will color how we understand the rest of the New Testament. Because many have argued that the apostles, and John in particular here, were mistaken and their their expectations. That is, that the apostles thought that Jesus was coming back, and, and here we are, what, 19 centuries later? It hasn't happened yet. And so some people have said, you know, if the apostles could be so wrong about that, then how do we know that they were right about other things as well? It's an important issue. And we have to go back to the first verse of the first chapter of the book of Revelation, in which we are told that what John is going to be shown, what must soon take place. And it is spelled out in chapter one and verse seven. "Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be." So is this talking about Jesus coming back the second coming, the end of time? No. It's speaking of Christ' coming in 70 .AD to judge Israel for breaking the covenant. He is coming with the clouds. This is very much Old Testament language. And when we first went through this, I read you several passages. I'll just read you one from Daniel 7, where Daniel has a vision. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The person, the Son of Man, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would remind you, when Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin, the high priest asked him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us, if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answered, Yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the Sanhedrin understood exactly what Jesus was saying. They accused him of blasphemy and they put him to death because of it. Because Jesus is not simply saying, I am the Son of God. He said, I am the Son of Man who is going to come and judge you guys, not future generations. Not centuries later, he says, I'm coming back on the clouds of heaven, and I will judge you. And we are told in, Je- in Revelation 1 uh, that this, ex- this judgment will be experienced by those who pierced him, both the Romans, that is the Gentiles, and the Jews, as well as all the tribes of the land. This is what John has written in Greek. And when you say tribes of the land, what do we think? Twelve tribes, Israel. Jesus was coming in judgment on the clouds to judge Israel. And it happened in 70 AD. And you know, I, I teach history, and I, I think one of the most difficult things I have to do as a teacher is to somehow get people to look at the past and to, and to put themselves there, because we live after the fact, and you know, the implications have already worked out, the consequences, and so we assume this is the way it's always been. But for the early church, Jerusalem was a special place. That's where the temple was. That was the mother church. That's where the apostles were. And now John is writing to say, guess what, guys? It's all going to be destroyed. The temple, the city, it's all going to be destroyed. And I think for the early church, this would, must have been shocking. For us, you know, it's happened long ago. Temple, we, you know, we don't care about the temple. No, they understood. And Jesus had said that that generation would not pass away until these things were fulfilled. In 70 AD, that's precisely what happened. Those who had broken the old covenant suffered, if you wish, the penalty clauses of the covenant, the curses of the covenant. You know that in a contract, sometimes you're given, you know, if you finish the job early, you will get extra benefits. And if you go late, then you pay a penalty. Well, God's covenant with Israel, he said, if you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me and break the covenant, I will curse you. And that's what happened, and that's what John has described in this book. So when the apostles say that this will happen soon, they're not mistaken. If we think that we are mistaken, then in fact, we are in error. Because we think that the apostles are talking about the second coming at the end of time. That's not what they're talking about. They're looking to Jesus returning on the clouds of heaven and judging Israel for what they have done. However, lest we get into a negative mode and stay there, that's only one side of the coin, because Jesus says, My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Jesus, to whom all authority has been given, will establish his kingdom. He described this in Matthew chapter 16. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And people say, ah, see there, even Jesus was mistaken, because the second coming hasn't happened. He's not talking about the second coming. He's talking about coming in judgment but then also to establish his kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever. Then John is told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. I don't know if you remember this, but in chapter 10, uh, John heard things. He heard the seven thunders and he was going to write it down and he was told, no, don't write this up. Don't write it down. Um, uh, Seal up the words of the prophecy. This is not for this generation to know. Interestingly enough, Daniel is told to write a prophecy, and then he's told to seal it up. It's not yet time. It would be 700 years, not that long, 500 years, and then the prophecy would be fulfilled. But here, John has said, you know, don't seal the envelope. You know, don't lick it and seal it up. Leave it open because it's going to happen very, very soon. And in fact, in less than five years, the things that John describes would take place. And then in verse 14, we come to the final benediction. It is the seventh benediction in this book. The numbers are very important. The seventh and final benediction. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Those of you who have the King James, I don't know if anyone does here today, but you may notice that it reads quite differently. Um, Blessed are those who do his commandments versus, blessed are those who wash their robes. You might say, well, which one is right? I would say that they both are, because they both point to the same reality, the grace of God. However, the wording may point us in a different direction. We may be thinking, look at me, I'm doing the commandments of God. Or look at me, I'm washing my clothes in the blood of the Lamb. No, it is the grace of God and the death of Jesus which bestows these privileges on us. It's not because of our keeping the commandments. We are to do that. It is not because of our efforts in washing our robes. It is only because of the grace of God. Only one other place in Revelation are we told about washing robes. This is sort of an, a unique picture. It's in chapter 7, when one of the elders explains to John, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It is the sacrifice of Christ that has made this possible. And what are the privileges are given to those who have done these things? That they may have the right to the tree of life. This was promised to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 7. They may go through the gates into the city. It's two ways of saying the same thing. Salvation, eternal life, God's life. But it is at this point that something is pointed out. Um... Something that we might not expect. And that is that there is a division among the peoples. Not everyone is going to be a part of the bride of Christ. Not everyone is going to be in heaven with God. So we have verse 11, which on the face of it I think is really quite a strange verse. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. And then we have verse 15, after the final benediction. Outside, it is outside the city, the church, are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You see, opposite heart orientations and behavior patterns have opposite destinies. What verse 11 is saying, those who choose to live a particular way, then that's what's going to happen. You want to choose to do wrong, then choose to do wrong. You want to choose to be vile, then choose to be vile. You will be vile. But those who are God's people are those who will do what is right, those who are holy. In verse 15, the list of offenses of those who are outside the city is similar to what we saw in chapter 21, verse 8. And I believe the point is the same. John is not giving us a catalog list to say, you might say, well, I'm not guilty of these things, therefore I'm in, I'm in the church. Not at all. It's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying, you have a choice. This is throughout the whole book. Stand with Christ, be an overcomer, or go over to the other side and be a traitor. For us, that, well, we live in a different time. We don't suffer physical persecution. But there were many in the early church who, because of persecution, left the church and went over to the other side. And going over to the other side meant being involved with pagan worship, being sexually immoral, practicing the magic arts, being murderers, that is, turning those in that you know to be Christians. And rather than loving the truth, loving lies, loving falsehood. And the list we find here are those who are not the overcomers, these are the traitors who have gone over to the other side. And now we come to the end, verses 17 through 21. We have an invitation, a warning, and a blessing. Because this is a book about covenants, it is appropriate that at the end that we hear a word of blessing as well as a warning. First of all, there is the invitation, however, come. The Spirit and the church say, come. This is the work of the Spirit and of the church. To leave the gates open. To let those come in who would accept the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where the tree of life is. This is where the river of the water of life is. Come on in, the Spirit and the church say. Receive the free gift of the water of life. And then we hear a warning. And the message of this warning is is briefly... Don't change this book. The language is reminiscent of what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy. Uh, Do not add to what I command you. Do not subtract from it. But keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Um, Here we hear the same thing. Don't add. Don't subtract. If you add to it, God will add to you the plagues. If you take away in a way that I think... For the modern evangelical mind is is hard to comprehend. God will take you out of the church. God will take you out of the book of life. It has been suggested, by the way, that uh, what John is writing here is intended for the whole Bible. That what John, because this is the these are the last verses of the Bible, what John is saying here is if you add anything to the Bible you'll be in trouble. If you take anything away from the Bible, you'll be in trouble. I think that is true, by the way. You are not to add. You're not to take away from Scripture. But I don't think that's what John has in mind. He's speaking of this particular passage, of of this particular book, of the book of Revelation. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. And then the final words, I am coming soon. It's going to happen. And it did, in fact, happen. Come, Lord Jesus. The church wants the Lord to come in judgment. Remember, the martyrs are crying under the altar, How long, O oh Lord? How long before He would come in judgment? But then the last words of this book are words of grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So we come to the end of the book of Revelation. And it may seem a bit, a bit abrupt. I'm sure in the weeks to come we will be talking more about it. but. What have we learned from the book of Revelation? Just quickly, as we wrap up. I think the first thing we've learned is that the book of Revelation is a difficult book. It's written in a style that is so unfamiliar to us. We are modern people. We don't want people doing poetry and metaphors and symbolism. We just want them, tell me what you're going to tell me. Okay, Don't beat around the bush, just tell me. And so I think in many ways it's been difficult for us. Secondly, to understand the book of Revelation, you have to know the Old Testament. And many people do not, and that increases the difficulty. But what we find in this book is that things are not as they appear. That Jesus Christ is the overcomer. Earlier in the book, we saw him as the Lamb, and that people were afraid of the Lamb. And we're thinking, why would you be afraid of a Lamb? because he's also the Lion of Judah things are not as they appear in the midst of great persecution the church needed to be reminded of that the call of the Christian is to endure and to remain pure in the midst of persecution the call of the Christian is to obey and to worship we are to worship here on earth as they worship in heaven that's why we are here today And I would tell you that the last thing that we read in the book of Revelation are words of grace, not words of judgment. We have an invitation. We have words of grace. In a book that is filled with judgment and plagues that God was going to pour out on those who had violated his covenant, the last word was and always is God's grace. Just one more thing and then we'll stop. Some of you may be saying, well, David, what about the second coming? I thought that's what the book of Revelation is about. and Now you've sort of ruined that. Um, and what about heaven, streets of gold? I thought that's what heaven was about, and you've ruined that. Well, the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will look at what the Bible says about the second coming. Is Christ returning? Absolutely. Will there be a resurrection? Yes, there will be. Will we be in the presence of God? Yes, we will be. But that's not what John's writing about here. And making it... Wanting it to be that way isn't going to make it be that way. But the Lord willing, perhaps after the new year, um, we will come back to to the subject. What does the Bible say about the second coming of Christ? And what does the Bible teach about heaven? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you. this book for all its difficulties and the things that even now we still do not understand we are grateful for what we do understand by your grace and your spirit that we are to stand with Christ even in persecution perhaps in our time in, in the absence of persecution we might sort of drift away we are to stand with him who is the overcomer I thank you for these months that we've spent together going through this book. And may we not be hearers only, but doers as well. May we put into practice, may our hearts be set afire with the desire to worship you as the angels worship you in heaven. As your people who are already there with you worship you. May we join with them in worship. We thank you that your word is trustworthy and true that it can be trusted, that it has spoken the truth. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you, not through any goodness of our own, but because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in giving his life, because of the work of the Spirit. We give thanks for this amazing privilege. And now as we spend time together after the service and and talking and eating together and in fellowship, may your spirit guide our conversations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We will, in fact, be having... Uh, the potluck afterwards but let's stand and sing the doxology together and have the benediction somewhere not able to stay and then we will be eating in a few minutes would you stand let's sing the-